Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, you've probably heard about it or perhaps even experienced it, had to cope with it yourself, this shortage of Adderall. It's a prescription amphetamine that treats attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, also other conditions. And it's been in short supply in the U.S. since about last fall. Just a few minutes, I'll talk with the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Chief Pharmacy Officer, Michael Brownlee. He'll tell us why this shortage began, how soon patients, medical providers, pharmacists, they're all affected. We'll see adequate supplies return. Hopefully it's soon. And how to cope in the meantime if you're uh, suffering from this shortage uh, of Adderall. Uh, Let's talk with someone who has depended on Adderall or similar medications for a long time and had to cope with this shortage. Kara is with us. Kara's in her mid-30s, and she lives here in the Midwest. Uh, She would like us to use her first name only due to the stigma attached to ADHD, uh, which we may talk about a little bit later. Kara, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to how you've experienced this shortage, I'd like you to help us understand what it's like to have ADHD. You were diagnosed very early in your childhood. Uh, What were you like as a young child that led to uh, being diagnosed and uh, medication? I am. So I was diagnosed in the early 90s. I was a five-year-old girl. And for those who know, that's very unusual for girls to be diagnosed, especially in the 90s, because we're primarily inattentive. So instead of being yellers and kickers and runners, we are daydreamers and chatterboxes. And in my case, it was I couldn't follow any instructions, even things I knew how to do. You tell me to do one thing, I'd wander off. I lost everything that was put in my hands. Any task that my mom set me to do was over. And I had a tendency to get overwhelmed and have these terrible tantrums and meltdowns. And finally, some people recommended, they're like, I think there's something more going on here. And my mom took me to a psychologist for an evaluation. Now, your parents obviously noticed it and, and sought treatment. What do you remember about how that felt to you as a child? Of course, you're not aware that you're suffering from anything. That's just your reality, right? Exactly. Um, I actually have really good memories as a child. And it's it's hard to say. It's one of those things where the default, right? What I remember most distinctly is the first day that my mom decided to use medication, which at the time would have been Ritalin, methylphenidate. And we used to have this battle every morning where I had to put my dishes in the sink, right? I was five. She's like, you're old enough to do this. Please put them in the sink. And I would forget them or run across the room and fling my fork everywhere. It was a battle every single meal. And she's like, let's try this medication. Kara, do you want to try it? And I said, sure. And she gave me this medicine. And that morning, I picked up my plate and my fork and my glass. And I walked them nicely over to the sink and then went to play. What did it feel like? What were you were you clearer in your head? Were you less sort of sort of chaotic or what was it like? It's it's like the chaos clears. I would say for me especially as a kid it was like anything that grabs my attention is like someone shouting at me. So imagine you're in a room and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people and they're all shouting and yelling at you and trying to get your attention even if you can sort of try to put them out of your mind. 
you always feel split between all of these things. And then it was like, I was just quiet. I could have my own thoughts. I could finish my own thought that I was having. I didn't feel like I was being forcibly yanked from thing to thing to thing. You had focus. I had focus. And it's not even just focus. It's the lack of distraction, just the ability to live in the silence, which was new. (laughs) What was it like then as you got older up into your teens? Did you continue taking it? Uh, Did you ever stop? Did you ever think you could stop taking it? I did. And so I, I would like to remind people, so we're talking about the 90s into the early 2000s. And the common knowledge at the time was that ADHD gets better as you get older. That's no longer what a lot of people think. Um, what they think is that people get better at coping. And so um, I took it all through elementary school and into middle school. And then around the time I got into high school, I thought, well, I don't, I don't need to do this anymore. This is really annoying. And I am a very wise teenager. And I thought, I don't need this. And I didn't want (laughs) to take it. My mom wasn't going to force me. She's like, you know, it's up to you. Make your own bad choices. And then I went from being a pretty solid A student to being an AD student. And that sort of lifestyle continued for the next 10 years. And I really believed Mm -hmm. that, well, it's just because I was lazy and I didn't apply myself. And I just had to work myself into a panic in order to get things done because I'd be so disorganized, so all over the place. And then suddenly something is about to blow up in your face and you'd have this huge surge of adrenaline and that focuses you, right? Stimulants Mm -hmm. focus us. So I would suddenly have this massive surge of adrenaline and do a 20-page paper in three days. Or I would be at work and be behind on whatever my work task was and get this massive surge of adrenaline and do it all in a day Friday. But that burns you out. And so there was college after college and even some time in grad school. I was just a dysfunctional mess for years. And I didn't know why. Because what they always said is, oh, like it's it's a school thing. It's a little kid thing. It's paying attention in class. And that's not what it is. Kara, I wonder, may I ask if if you're medicated right now? I am. Could I tell a difference talking to you if, if you were not medicated? How would it be different? In my case, yes. Again, the primarily inattentive type, and one of the things about us is we are often known to be chatterboxes. So I am trying very hard not to talk over you. When I am unmedicated, uh, I don't have impulse control, right? Um, And so Mm. what that means is I will interrupt people. I will talk on end. I will say any thought that comes into my mind, regardless of how kind or appropriate it is. I have trouble Mm. paying attention or following what the other person is saying. And it has gotten me into trouble socially, professionally, academically. I would like everyone out there to imagine that thing that you've thought that that little filter comes down and says, don't say that. That's not a thing you should say. And imagine that filter doesn't and the brain mouth connection is just a complete slide. So I'm a little bit chatty and pressurized right now. Dial it up to 12. (laughs) Okay. You're painting the picture. You're giving us such a good idea of, of what you have to cope with. Let's talk as before this conversation ends about what this shortage has been like for you. We have a few minutes. When did you first notice, notice the Adderall shortage and, and how did it impact your life? I would say I first noticed it last year. Uh, time has been very squishy since the pandemic, so I apologize. I want to say that I noticed it around 
last winter. So I want to say winter of 2021 going into 22, there's a little bit more of a struggle with getting things. And I need mm. people to understand, at least where I am, a Schedule 2 narcotic, you can't fill it early. You get it at the 30 because they can be addictive for some people. They are not for people with ADHD. We often forget to take our meds. So that means I have to choose certain days to skip my medication because if there is a day or two that there is a delay in filling it, then I am without without choice, right? So I have to pre-plan ahead of time what days I won't be medicated. And I would go to the Walgreens. Walgreens didn't have it. So then again, as a schedule two, my doctor has to call this in. So I would have to call every single pharmacy in my town. I was calling pharmacies two or three towns over trying to find any that had my prescription on any level and I could not find anyone. And so I would go suddenly weeks without medication, without any structure or planning in place. Um, I'm having to call my doctor's office over and over again. Someplace would call me, hey, we have your medication and I'm showing up and there's a group of people and we're all waiting. And so my life begins to disintegrate because it's everything that I need to keep on track. So it's what keeps me showing up at work on time. It's what keeps my laundry done. It's what keeps my house clean, my cats fed, my dishes, everything. Central to your life. We get the picture. It, has the shortage become any better uh, now as we're talking in March of uh, 2023? No, it's gotten worse. People are giving up. I gave up. So... My understanding, I know you're going to talk to professional, my understanding is that between the explosion of people newly diagnosed and people like me who were previously diagnosed but couldn't manage without medication anymore during the pandemic, the DEA is the one that gets to decide how much Adderall is made. It's not to the FDA. And there was a shortage due to the supply chain interruptions during COVID. And then the DEA is not going to allow more to be made, even though there's a higher demand. So we are in a Hunger Games situation with all of the newly diagnosed people and all of the existing diagnosed people are fighting each other for meds. And I opted out. So I am now taking Vyvanse. Vyvanse does not work as well for me. And the other thing is with medications like this, they have to do something called a titrate. So they start you at what would be the lowest reasonable dose. You sit at that for couple weeks, maybe a month. And then if it doesn't work, you go up to the next dose. So that's weeks, if not months of being non-functional or partially functional to determine how well the medication works. And then if ultimately you decide this isn't it for me, you switch to another one. And my concern is because they're going to switch us to other schedule to cause an ooze. So all of us who were on Adderall are going to switch over to Concerta, Vyvanse, and Ritalin. And as those begin to experience shortages and interruptions, we're going to switch out to other medications that are sometimes used, which are antidepressants, such as Wellbutin and Stratera, and those are going to have a run on them as well. So I don't really know. And the concern is for people who can't get their meds switched. Um, so for example, Vyvanse is much more expensive. So I went from paying $5 a prescription to 30 Wow. And for some people that might be out of reach, especially because loves with ADHD struggle with unemployment and underemployment because of our behavior. And we will begin to turn to other things that help us. And since what helps us is yeah. stimulants, we like to turn to coffee, we like to turn to cigarettes. In extreme cases, we like to turn to meth and we like to turn to cocaine. And oh in some cases, when people want to quiet themselves, 
they will turn to depressants. So we like to turn to alcohol and we like to turn to opioids. And we are very, very likely to be addicts because we don't have impulse control, because we don't have that filter that says, wait, 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 stop. This is a bad idea. You're going to hurt yourself. So I am very worried for my fellow ADHDers. Kara, thank you for telling us uh, about the struggles you've been through uh, with ADHD, but also compounded by this shortage. We hope it doesn't last too much longer. Kara, here in the Midwest, we wish you well. Thank you for sharing your struggles. Thank you so much. Coming up after a short break, University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Chief Pharmacy Officer Michael Brownlee will find out more about this shortage and hopefully when it will end soon. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And we're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. For those who just joined us this hour talking about the shortage of Adderall, uh, maybe it's affected you or a, a loved one. Adderall's a prescription amphetamine that treats attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, and other conditions. It's been in short supply here in the U.S. since last year. Uh, Let's talk more about this shortage with University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Chief Pharmacy Officer Michael Brownlee. Michael Brownlee, welcome to the program. Hey, Ben. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for making time for us. Moments ago, we heard from a Midwest woman, Kara, with ADHD. She's struggled with it for decades uh, since she was a very young child and has really struggled now over the past year or so with this Adderall shortage. Describe the shortage, the bigger picture. Give us a snapshot, if you would, Michael, on how serious, serious this short supply is and how many it's affecting. Uh, yeah, that's a it's a great question, and I, I think it's really been ongoing now since last October uh, that it's been creating challenges, uh, not just for kids that are in schools, but as you mentioned, it impacts adults as well. So it's a broad uh, sweeping issue, and it started with uh, a shortage with Adderall, the generic version, and there were shortages uh, starting last October. Uh, that then started to create shortages in other medications also used to treat ADHD. So uh, I think you've you've been able to hear and uh, from many that this is creating challenges for a lot that of those uh, individuals that need to be treated for ADHD. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the the different medications here. But Adderall is only one, but we have uh, by by talking with Kara, three, four, five different uh, alternatives here. But uh, do they? match people and their disorders in different ways? Is is that how we're to understand it? Yeah, there are different classes of medications, and, and I'll break that down just really briefly. Uh, the stimulant medications, which Adderall is one of the two classes primarily used to treat ADHD, they fall into amphetamines and then also methylphenidate. So you might have heard Adderall uh, that is an amphetamine-type medication used to treat ADHD. Methylphenidate is Ritalin. And there are lots of different dosage forms that can be used, but those are the two primary classes used to treat ADHD. So where we've seen a shortage with Adderall specifically 
that shortage has then caused shortages with some of the other medications. And it's it's really specific to the individual, uh, which medication works for them in working with their provider. So the treatment of ADHD is much more than just the medications. It's behavioral therapy, it's diet, it's sleep, it's lots of different things that, that tie into how you can care for a patient with ADHD. But primarily, stimulants are the most effective medication that are used primarily to help those with ADHD stay focused, manage behavioral issues, and things like that. There are other medications that fall into the non-stimulant category that can also help, and then sometimes antidepressants can help as well. So what we've seen with the shortage is that a lot of those other medications that may not have been first-line therapy, like an antidepressant or a non-stimulant medication, are now coming to the forefront to be used as primary treatment because of the shortages. And that's where it's creating a lot of challenges for patients where they may have been stabilized on a medication and they're having to switch now to something that may be less effective or may have additional side effects that they are undesirable for that individual. Mm-hmm. And Michael, I want to ask you what you can tell us about the the causes of the shortage in just a moment, but I want to stay focused on the patient experience here, uh, the ones who are really struggling here, and I'm your staff and your pharmacist there at UIHC. Certainly, this has thrown a wrench into the works for many months, but to stay focused on the patients, what does this look like, this shortage from the patient's perspective? What are you hearing, perhaps through your pharmacists, uh, about the, the struggles of patients? It has been a significant struggle for patients. Because the supply of the medications has been inconsistent, the patients then have to make phone calls to multiple pharmacies to be able to identify if they have stock of the medication that they're taking. If so, they would then have to have a prescription written by their provider to be called into the pharmacy. It can't just be transferred because it's a controlled substance, a Schedule II controlled substance. So that creates a lot of additional phone calls for the patient or for the family member that's taking care of the patient to not only call around to multiple pharmacies to be able to identify if they have medications available that they're desiring to have, then it will also require phone calls to their provider to get a prescription. So that's from the patient perspective. From the provider's standpoint, you can imagine our physicians, our providers are getting lots of phone calls from patients and family members for those prescriptions to be moved to other pharmacies. Our pharmacies here are having to deal with increased phone calls and patient concerns, trying to identify whether the medications are available. So you can see how this has created a challenge, not only on the patient or the family side, it's also created a lot of challenges on the provider and pharmacy side as well to just identify where medications might be available and how to get them on an alternate therapy that could be effective for that patient. Yeah, Kara, the young woman we just uh, spoke with with ADHD, she's you know having to ration and having to go without Adderall, just really hanging on. I, I don't think she did disagree with that description. Um, you know, what does it mean for someone with this type of disorder to just be hanging on there, um, looking for medication that can help? Well, a- as much um, Adderall would be the best in, in her case, but um, an alternative right. too. Yeah, I think hanging on is a good way to put it. Uh, You know, if you're a a family member of a child in school and they need the medication to stay focused, to manage their behaviors uh, in class, uh, you can imagine the impact that that has on on the family or to the individual student or the child that, you know, you come home at night, it's hard enough to manage potentially other family members, or maybe you yourself have ADHD, taking care of an ADHD child, 
it creates a situation that's much more difficult to manage. If you're an adult and you have a job to go to that requires critical functions and you need to stay focused, uh, it can have an impact there as well. So you mentioned rationing. That is an option. You know, potentially on the weekend, you might not have to take your medication or you might not take your medication to ration it. So you can use it during the week, but then that can create uh, challenges for you on the weekend if you need to get things done. Uh, around the house or have other functions just from a, a life perspective. So I think what you described as hanging on is really uh, what we see with, with our patients right now is is waiting for the resolution uh, of these shortages. And we're hopeful that that's going to come sometime in April, uh, but uh, it's unclear at this time. Yeah. Uh, ADHD, one of the conditions treated by Adderall, give us a, a spectrum of conditions that, that where Adderall can be effective in, in treating conditions. Yeah, that's a, a great question because it can be used, you know, if you have um, hyperactivity. So uh, what the what the drug does is helps uh, create an increase in neurotransmitters in your brain to uh, to bring things into focus. And a great analogy that I've heard, it's like putting glasses on uh, if you have vision issues. It helps bring you into focus so that you can stay focused on a critical task. Um, you can manage hyperactivity and bring that um, behavioral issue down. You can uh, stay more focused if you're inattentive. And so it, it covers a spectrum. And some of our ADHD patients deal with depression and anxiety as well. So sometimes it's not just the ADHD, but there are other um, potential behavioral issues that, that go along with that or um, diagnoses. So uh, what we're trying to do with these medications is help the brain, help the uh, individual become more focused through this additional re- release of neurotransmitters. So as you can imagine, this that's a big impact for those that are impacted by ADHD. Uh, Michael Brownlee is Chief Pharmacy Officer at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Uh, we're talking about the uh, Adderall shortage, um, the prescription amphetamine that uh, treats attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and other conditions. And as uh, Michael described, it has a knock-on effect. Uh, If you can't find your Adderall, you go for an alternative, and those are becoming uh, in short supply, too. So let's get get, uh, sort of the big picture of what what can you tell us about what caused this shortage? And um, Kara said, uh, you know, I know the FDA, I think, made the announcement last October that there was a, a shortage, but Kara said she was noticing disruptions in supply as early as um, uh, the end of t- uh, 2021, beginning of 2022. Yeah, I think there are a number of factors here at play. I, I think what triggered this in October was Teva Pharmaceuticals is a major producer of uh, generic Adderall, about 30% of that market. They had issues with production. I think they had staffing issues. They had some other production issues uh, that then started to trigger additional shortages in the market. Uh, what we've seen over time, especially throughout the pandemic, with the increase in prescribing because the rules related to electronic prescribing, seeing patients through telehealth, has actually increased the demand for Adderall and the prescribing of Adderall. And so it's kind of a perfect storm here of we've had production issues on the generic medication side. We've seen an increase in prescribing and demand over time through online pharmacies and online providers, specifically uh, throughout the the pandemic. And then lastly, the DEA regulates, uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency regulates the amount that can be produced every year. So it's really a supply and demand issue that we're facing that the supply has decreased because of production issues. The demand has increased substantially 
because of online prescribing and just the overall um, identification of ADHD and the di- and diagnoses uh, that we're seeing in the community. Uh, so those things in combination have have led to this continued shortage uh, that uh, we've really been unable to resolve at this point. Yeah. How does um, abuse of Adderall fit into this picture of a shortage? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that's when it, that's where the DEA comes into play, that because it is a drug of abuse, uh, there is significant oversight from the Drug Enforcement Agency, uh, the FDA, to make sure that um, production uh, does not get out of hand. So uh, where many other drugs that are not controlled substances, that are not drugs of abuse, the production of, of those is relatively unlimited. In this case, because they are potentially drugs of abuse, the the production is, is limited um, by the Drug Enforcement Agency or the DEA. So I, I think they're working really hard to try and make sure that production can keep up with that demand without producing so much that it increases the abuse potential in our communities. And that's a tough tightrope to walk, I think, for our federal agencies. Yeah, and the abuse comes from um, people of all ages, but I've heard, too, in, in you know college, university situations, uh, students wanting to focus for a, a test or finals, right? Yeah, you know, that's not traditionally what you would think of as abuse. But for those that need it for ADHD and not just to focus for a final exam, uh, I think it can be perceived that way. So I, I think that's what's led potentially to some of the overprescribing or additional prescribing that's led to more demand is those wanting to use it for not traditional ADHD uses. So, uh, you know, on the abuse side, I think it's the perception would be more to get quote-unquote high. Uh, but I think what you mentioned about using it for other times to just focus has led to increased demand, uh, exacerbating the shortage. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have, Michael, for those listening um, like Kara or others like it who are really hanging on, to use that phrase again, um, who, who need uh, these prescription drugs for their well-being just to, to function, to, to maybe to work, to feel well, uh, depends on Adderall and, and some of the other related uh, drugs. So what advice do you have of, uh, of what to do? I mean, let, let's take an emergency situation, first of all. Yeah, I would say first and foremost for all of our patients that are struggling with this is talk to your provider, uh, if able. Uh, you mentioned emergency situation. Uh, do not take this into your own hands with trying to find drugs on the black market or across um, state lines or you know in potentially other countries or online pharmacies. Uh, those can be unsafe. We've seen uh, time and time again medications uh, that are, are not regulated by the FDA could be laced with fentanyl. They could have other challenges where, where the integrity of the drug is not there. So um, you had mentioned uh, in Kara's case, the rationing uh, is something that's reasonable to do to conserve some of the medication. Uh, but you know, in a situation where it's being perceived that it's urgent, uh, we're really concerned about our patients and family members trying to identify other medications um, that could potentially be unsafe. So primarily, we want our patients to talk to their providers. There are other uh, treatment options or, uh, that are available. Uh, It could be that the brand name drug is available and not the generic. So we want that conversation about switching to another medication to be with the provider, with the pharmacist, so that we can help them navigate through what the options are. When they see that there may not be any options, there there could be potentially uh, something that's available for them to switch to. 
Yeah, and, and the the stigma attached to a disorder like ADHD is is also figures in here, doesn't it? Because if you don't have the medication that gets your focus back, you have this chaotic, unfocused thinking. It can be apparent to certainly friends, family, coworkers. Right? There's a stigma there. There is, and I I think uh, we need to give each other some grace too, and understand that people do struggle with ADHD. It's it is a real condition, um, and. Uh, the stigma is unfortunate um, that, you know, that's created such a challenge in our society. And I, I think some of the pandemic has exacerbated some of that as well, too, that um, people are just struggling with a lot right now. And uh, we hate to see that they have to struggle with drug shortages to be able to treat this condition. So, um, you know, like I said, I, we want to make sure that we uh, can present all options to our patients and families. Uh, but I do think that uh, we all need to be understanding during these times and and uh, that we all need as much, you know, not just medication help, but behavioral therapy, uh, support systems at home uh, to help people successfully navigate through uh, what's happening today with ADHD medications. Michael, before we go, what is your best educated guess as to when this shortage will uh, be over? I, I think the FDA is cautious, cautiously saying uh, potentially this could resolve in April uh, I think with the expiration of the public health emergency and online prescribing potentially decreasing over the next couple of months, that might uh, decrease the the demand for these types of medications uh, because it might be more difficult to get those online visits. Uh, so I think uh, April is probably optimistic in just another month. Uh, I would say sometime early this summer we should see a resolution and uh, this should be easier for patients and families uh, to get access to these types of medications. Mm-hmm. Very quickly before we, we go, another health issue briefly. It's been nearly three years that the UIHC has had a mask mandate as of Wednesday of this week. Face masks have been optional in all of your facilities except for those who have symptoms of respiratory virus or for employees who are unvaccinated. Uh, the masks are still required there. Must be quite a change to see people's faces again. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a. It was a very refreshing day to be able to walk down the hallway and and see faces and some of the faces we haven't seen for three years. We've had people who started working here and we've been masked the entire time and uh, we almost don't recognize each other at times. But I think it really marks. Uh, uh, isn't that isn't that funny how we. We've worked together every single day, and we we barely recognize each other. But I think it marks a really important time in the pandemic that um, we're ready to move into a different direction. We've consulted with our program of hospital epidemiology to make sure it's still safe uh, from a masking perspective. And and you're right, it's uh, it's been a great move for us, and I think it's really raised the energy level to have us be more connected, um, not just with each other, but with our patients and families as well. Michael Brownlee, Chief Pharmacy Officer at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Uh, Thanks for your views, Uh, Michael. Take care. All right. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Coming up after a short break, um, the story of how 71 women saved a celebrated building in Jefferson, Iowa, when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Finally today, the story of how a group of women in Jefferson, Iowa, that's in the central part of the state in uh, Greene County, asked the question, why not us? And that question was the start of an all-women investment group of the same name that saved a celebrated, a historic building in Jefferson. It transformed that structure into a dining establishment. Joining us now to share this really uplifting story, Peg Rainey. She's the Why Not Us board president. Hi, Peg. Hi, Ben. Thanks for inviting us to be a part of your day. You're very welcome. Sarah Ostrander is with us as well, owner and chef of the Centennial, the new restaurant in this historic structure. Sarah, welcome to you. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having us. Let's go back and make sure our Iowa listeners, Midwest listeners, are are understanding what kind of building this is. Peg, before we get to the restoration and the new look, tell us about this building uh, and a bit of its history. It's really special, isn't it? It sure is. It's a corner building in our historic downtown of Jefferson. Um, It is uh, one of the very few intact um, courthouse squares in the state of Iowa. And so when kind of the uh, trouble happened with the breaking of the pipes and we just wanted to make sure that this historic building uh, didn't, uh, was able to recover and bring back a restaurant that we all love. Right. Okay. So what happened in 2019? Uh, thousands of gallons flooded into this 150-year-old structure. It damaged specifically a, a beloved uh, tea garden, a tea room, right? That's right. Uh, a, a tea garden, tea room that was open for almost 20 years and had brought a lot of people into town. There were many of us that celebrated lots of great occasions there. And when that flooding happened, we just uh, were wondering what's going to happen. What what what, sh- what should we do? Yeah. So you have this damaged building, and then this this period of what are we going to do? What's what's going to happen? Has happened? How long? And how did that lead to the birth of why not us? Well, we waited a little while to see if anybody else stepped up and kind of said out loud to some of the other women that our volunteers in our community, maybe some of us could come up with a solution. So we started brainstorming ideas and felt like this might be something that we could tackle. Mm -hmm. Okay, so take us back to, I think, late 2019. How did you initially attack the challenge, and and how was the name of this initiative, (laughs) Why Not Us, born? Well, we set a goal of getting 30 women. Um, We reached out to friends, family, people that we knew might have an interest in being involved in a project like this. We determined that um, a $5,000 donation would uh, help someone be a part of a group like this. We easily uh, reached that 30 uh, number of people um, by December of 2019, and we decided to continue to expand. Uh, we reached out to this same group of women and said, oh, "What we need a name. What should we call ourselves?" And that's where 
someone came up with, well, why not us? Why shouldn't we step in and make something happen here? Right, and, and share some of the other sources of revenue here, because you have how many women in the end who joined at the $5,000 level? And, and it's interesting, you capped it at $5,000. Explain that. Well, we just felt like that was a, an amount of money that everyone would need to really make a decision whether they wanted to be a part of it. But for many of the people that we talked to, it wasn't so significant an amount that they couldn't um, put that m- amount together and, and put it towards this project. Um, we liked the idea that everybody was on the same level. Um, we formed an LLC, so there would not be any individual liability. We have a lawyer as our vice president, and um, she's been very instrumental in you know, getting everything uh, situated for us as we talk to women. And then we gradually increased our goal to how about 45, and we reached that really Mm. um, easily, too. Um, At this point, we have 71 women who have um, put $5,000 in, and we also have friends of Why Not Us who have also offered lots of donations just to make this project be successful. So the skin of a lot of women in this game, I guess, (laughs) right? (laughs) It is. And we even have women that don't live in Greene County anymore. We have over Mm. a dozen women who called Jefferson or Greene County home and heard about the project and, and, and probably had spent a lot of time at the tea room and wanted to see this happen. Um, we set out a goal. We had a twofold goal. One is we wanted to bring back a special place into our community. And the other was that we knew it made an impact on the other businesses in our community and particularly around the square. Um, many of those are women-owned businesses. They didn't see the traffic, foot traffic coming through, and we wanted to bring that back. And who better to know that is women who like to shop and like to eat and like to gather with their friends. Peg, I want to give Sarah a chance in just a moment to talk about what she has transformed there uh, out of the, the centennial in terms of a restaurant. But I want to have you finish up this story and bring it us, bring us up to the point uh, where Sarah enters the picture. Now, talk a little bit about uh, after forming Why Not Us and the LLC, what decisions had to be made about the restoration? Uh, what did you want to restore that had been there before? What did you want to create that was perhaps new in design? Yes, um, our community had been through a lot of restoration, historic preservation in our community. We saw how facade improvements made a big difference in our community. So we took to, took a look at the building. Many of the windows were boarded up. Um, it was a Victorian tea room before, and we wanted to bring back all of the natural light with new windows. We wanted to have it be a little um, more modern look, not necessarily a Victorian tea room, but something that men would feel as comfortable being there as well. Um, The window hoods over each of the 19 windows on the two stories are very unique. They have faces on them, um, and we felt like those looked like women faces. Mm. And so we celebrated the history of the building and 
just felt like we wanted to move forward with another restaurant. And, and that's where Sarah comes in. Uh, we worked with an architect that we were very familiar with. We, he helped us go through the construction process. We've learned a lot through all of this. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, I want to remind our listeners who may have just joined us, Peg Rainey speaking now, uh, Why Not Us board president, um, Sarah Ostrander is with us as well, owner and chef of the Centennial. And this is the story of how a group of women in Jefferson, Iowa, um, asked the question, Why Not Us, uh, formed a group and found an outpouring of people with money <laughs> uh, that that uh, restored this damage to historic uh, building and uh, transformed the structure into a dining establishment and also benefited the entire downtown, as Peg was just re- referring to. Uh, let me turn to you, uh, Sarah, here. You enter the picture. How did you enter the picture? Did the, did the group uh, uh, approach you, or were you part of uh, one of this uh, this group? No. Um, i kind of been watching from afar, you know, we, my family, my daughter and my mom and my grandma and I used to go to the Sierra when it was open. And so, you know, when we heard the news that it had been, you know, damaged, that was really sad. And we kind of watched from afar and read in the paper about the one at us group. And I thought that's such a special thing. And then I got a call one day from one of the, um, um, unit holders and asked if I would be interested in a new opportunity. And I thought, okay, let's, let's hear what's going on. And right away, it just seemed obviously too good to be true, but also what a great opportunity for me to come back into my home community and, you know, get to just make my passion kind of a reality of opening my own restaurant and, you know, just, getting to have my own kitchen. It's so great. And so I remember they invited me to their board meeting and that was about two years ago, right? Right about two years ago. Mm-hmm. And we sat and I think we talked for like two hours that night and just everybody sharing ideas and the vision of what this could look like. And it just kind of snowballed from there. It was wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So what did you, what did you end up as a vision and that you're describing what, um, I understand you're actually sitting outside, uh, your restaurant a, as we talk right now. So what, what did, did in fact happen and, and what is the vision that you've realized? I understand you have a busy day there today. We're, we're recording this conversation, but it's a popular place now, isn't it? Yeah, it's been very well received. <laughs> Um, but honestly, when I look at it now, I could have never envisioned how beautifully this building has been transformed over the last year. Um, the, I mean, obviously you look at, you know, the architect designs and you see, you know, kind of what this could look like, but having these big, beautiful windows that just line the street, it's just gorgeous. All the new heads and the hoods over the windows just really pay tribute to the history of the building. And inside, you know, the ladies, they all envisioned this. They got together and they did all the design work. And it's like that was kind of their project. And it just looks incredible. You don't believe it until you see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so tell us about your the menu you've developed, Sarah. I understand it, it changes. Things change on the menu every day. I'm going to be, I'm going to just be a customer. I'm. Uh, you can pick <laughs> anything off your menu, not especially what you have today, but I I come in, I look at the splendor here, the uh, restoration, and 
I actually do this when I go into restaurants I've never been to before and say, what do people like most? What's most popular here? What are you going to what are you going to serve uh, to me as a main course? And then I have to have a dessert, you know? <laughs> well, our most popular item is our centennial salad. And that is um, my recipe of a cranberry almond chicken salad. And it's served over greens and it comes with fresh bread and our soup of the day. Um, we also switch up all of the different kinds of like hot sandwiches and paninis that we make in different specialty salads. That was kind of one of the things I thought, can I please have a rotating menu? Cause I really don't want to get bored making the same things. I've got a whole <laughs> repertoire of recipes that I'm just dying to use. And I just love that I get to have that creative freedom and just kind of get to come up with some new things and, Everybody seems to be excited about, oh, what's the new menu going to be? And they look for it every couple weeks. You definitely have to get our Better Than Bell Tower cake. It is, um, we do a couple different variations. Right now we are serving an almond version, but normally we do a chocolate layered crunch cake, and it is fabulous. <laughs> mm. And I have to mention, Sarah, you were recently recognized uh, at the end of last year, I think, as one of uh, 40 women to watch in the state's hospitality industry by the Iowa Restaurant Association. Uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. That was very unexpected. And, you know, because we'd only been open a few months. But, you know, I worked in the food service industry for a very long time. So it's so great to finally have a place that I can put my name with. And, you know, it's it's kind of all on my shoulders, but it's so great to have kind of a built-in support system with all these wonderful women, and it's pretty special. Yeah. Uh, Peg, back to you uh, to, to expand on the point you made before. How has this helped uh, Jefferson, the, the center part of the town, the downtown? I understand, you know, Jefferson is, is about an hour outside of the Des Moines area, uh, less than an hour from Ames. Uh, how big is the... Uh, uh, the area, your catchment area, if I can put it that way? Well, I think we've seen uh, people from all over the state of Iowa, for sure, have come, but maybe more within an hour if they're coming for the day. And we are really ramping up all the other attractions in our community. So we invite people to come for the weekend or come for several days. Um, probably one of my favorite things to do is to see all the out-of-county out of cars that are lined up around the street, mm -hmm. and we just enjoy hearing from the other um, proprietors of our shops that they see groups of people coming in to check out their wares, too. Sarah, when you since you're glowing with the success of your restaurant here, um, before we go, briefly tell us, how has this changed you? Um, I mean, if someone had told you a few years ago before uh, you even picked out to head this, uh, that this would happen to you, would you have believed it? Honestly, no. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I would venture that any person with a culinary background probably thinks about what it would be like to open their own restaurant or have their own place. And I think sometimes it's just so daunting. You know, it's, it's a huge cost. <laughs> it's cost prohibitive. So, um, you know, getting to be a part of this project has absolutely been life changing. I love being back in my home community after working away for 20 years and, you know, getting to be closer to my daughter and, you know, just working in the community that we live in is wonderful. And just getting to know all of our local, you know, business owners and also just 
customers and um, getting to meet all these people has been wonderful. Okay. Um, Sarah Ostrander, thank you, owner and chef of the Centennial Peg. We have a few seconds left. Uh, tell us how people can find out more and perhaps drive more than from an hour away, <laughs> because it sounds like it's, wor- it's worth it. Well, it's definitely worth it. And Sarah is just uh, delightful, and her culinary skills, uh, skills are as great as the, her personality. So it will be a real experience for people to come. Um, There are lots of different ways. If you're on Facebook, uh, Sarah has a Facebook page called The Centennial, and our Why Not Us group has a Facebook page as well, so we share a lot of her menus and and such on there. Um, We have a Gmail address, whynotustea.com. T-E-A at gmail.com. Um, the experience jefferson.com website talks about not only the centennial, but all the other kinds of things that are going on in Jefferson as well. Okay. Check it out. The centennial in Jefferson, Iowa. Thank you, Peg Rainey, uh, board president. Why not us? And Sarah Ostrander, owner and chef of the centennial. Thank you. And we wish you continued success. Thank Thank you you so much. much. We appreciate it. River to River Today, produced by Samantha McIntosh, Catherine Perkins, our executive producer. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.